Work, workforce, and workplace norms are shaped as much by popularized portrayals as they are by our lived experiences. From sensational headlines, like The Great Resignation, to successful series, like The Office and Silicon Valley, to skits and stories shared on our social media feeds, what we see shapes what we believe. Let's go behind the scenes to discover what's new now and next in the world of work, and we'll challenge the traditions of what it means to live well and to work well. This is Success From Anywhere. Today on Success From Anywhere, we'll meet a serial success who's got his mind on the money and money on his mind, having deployed over $100 million in venture capital across a dozen companies. He's as generous with his time as he is with his money, according to former President Barack Obama, who honored him with the Volunteer Service Award. Please join me in welcoming to the show Saad Siddiqui, General Partner at Telstra Ventures. Welcome. Thanks, Karen. Excited to be on here. Before we dive into the show, everyone will want to know, how did you win an award from a former president and what was it like? to keep the company of a former president. Yeah, so it's an interesting story. So it's part of it is from my past. So I, when I migrated to the United States, I was fortunate enough to have a lot of incredible mentors, being an immigrant, being someone who didn't know anything about like what a career looked like. So given the, the guidance of a lot of these great mentors, I was able to find my path through the career that I'm on today. And so to try to give back, we started a handful of nonprofits, one of which was America Needs You. And through that work, I ended up getting an award from the president. And the main goal was to try to find like incredible young students, first-generation and college students, provide them with mentoring and through a two-year program. And then in that two-year program, we'll helping them find jobs and setting them up for their careers for the long run. What an awesome opportunity to make an impact and really contribute to better workforces, better workplaces, and more access to opportunity. One question I like to ask everyone on the show because we talk about work, what was your first paying job and how did that job inform or inspire your career trajectory? Oh man, so my first job was actually painting my uncle's house where his <laughs> one of his rental properties. I worked all summer and ended up making a couple hundred dollars. And I started realizing that moment in time, working with my hands, just not my thing. So <laughs> it kind of made me kind of go down the more white collar sort of path. Work with your mind, not with your hands is what you took away from your experience, it sounds like. Take us through your career path because many listeners are people in finance or investing, and you have had this passion for making an impact play out in a variety of ways throughout your career. So take us through some of those monumental moments and share a little bit more about what you're doing today. Yeah, so uh, I actually started my career at like a really interesting juncture. So I actually graduated from college in 2008, which was, and goal was to try to head towards the financial services industry as an investment banker. And it was probably one of the best times in, in history to go into finance, given like 
all these different banks were shutting down and stuff like that. So had an offer from a couple of banks, unfortunately, all of which are no longer there, ended up uh, at a at Merrill Lynch initially, which a month after I joined, ended up getting bought by B of A. During that time, it was like a really tumultuous sort of period because like we saw people that had decades of experience getting laid off, right, in the same firm. Just from an observation perspective, I saw like my generation starting to realize like, hey, like our parents and grandparents' careers of like staying with a specific company isn't being rewarded anymore. Like a lot of those services that where people spent decades just aren't being awarded. So like my generation, I saw this transition from like, hey, we got to like switch every two, three years to a different job, started coming into more light, I guess. So after my time at B of A, I, I continued down the financial path, worked at RBC as an investment banker as well. I actually found my uh, way to our alma mater at Cisco where I worked on the acquisition M&A side of things and did a lot of cool work around tech infrastructure and loved, like, like I thought finance was hard till I got in tech and I was like, well, this is where all the smart people are and uh, learned some incredible stuff from, from some of our old colleagues. And after a few years there, I moved to a company called Informatica where I ran M&A partnerships, product strategy, and a bunch of other things. And after some time there, I started realizing I just missed working with younger companies, that the exposure I had from Cisco, and moved over to Telstra now about seven years ago. And today I'm like looking at interesting companies, everything from like enterprise infrastructure, like networking infrastructure to next-gen applications that are sort of changing the way how we work and have sort of made some really interesting investments in, in all those areas. From country shifts to company shifts, it seems like you specialize in change and have probably some great guiding principles we could all learn from about how to accept change, embrace change, make the most of change. What have you discovered that might be useful for all of our listeners? So the way I think about change is like the only thing that one can control is themselves. So like you have to do the best that you can at any given point in time, just be observant about like how the world is changing. And in my short career, like I've seen uh, some massive shifts, right? Like, like, when I started my career, like BlackBerry was the only sort of form of mobile communication. And like five years before that, that, that wasn't even a thing. And to now, like people work from home, like now the, the, the new recent Apple announcement around VR and AR, like things are changing in a massive way. So it's almost like be observant as you're sort of like in this world. And rather than rejecting everything that comes up, be open to some of that change that's sort of coming your way because the pace of change is accelerating rather than staying the same, applies to the way we work uh, in a massive way. And I think COVID, for example, had this massive impact on how everyone lived their lives and the way they worked. You mentioned a moment ago and you referenced it again, a significant amount of shifts in not only where and when we work, a lot of shifts are happening in how we work. And because 
part of your specialization is scanning the market. Share with us some disruptors that you're observing that will change how we work. The world is a very interesting place from an employment perspective. And I think it's probably important for us to maybe go through a little bit of the past to kind of see where we are today and some of the, the trends that are sort of impacting today. Up until like 2000, it felt like everything was on a linear trajectory. Like, yeah, we have mobile phones, we can work from home. People work from home, not all, everyone, but like a decent amount of people work from home on Fridays. And that was like at the best that you could do from a hybrid work perspective. There were obviously a bunch of functions like sales that were constantly on the road that didn't change. And in 2000, when COVID hit, everyone was working from home. And we had this massive shift of everything from like, everyone needs a Zoom account. Everyone needs like a better office set up at home to like, you name it, just like everyone needed to sort of upend how they sort of thought about work and collaboration and stuff like that. So in that time, we saw a massive boon in collaboration software, massive boon in video conferencing and the ability to work from home. And as the world is sort of coming back, like COVID is over, people are coming back to work, people are trying to figure out like, hey, can we continue working from home? We've seen some of the upsides of working from home, but we've also seen some of the downsides. People need some time to context switch, right? You, you can't, it's hard for folks to sort of stay in the same place for 24 hours a day. Having human interaction was a big challenge for a lot of folks. So like them kind of interacting with their colleagues was helpful for a lot of people. And we've seen a rise in hybrid work in a, in a more concerted way where people are like, uh, are asking folks to come back to the office. So that sort of like has happened. And then we just got hit in the face, I think as employees with this whole generative AI shift as well, where people are starting to use a lot of these tools to become more productive. So there's like a couple of shifts that have happened over the last few years. And we can start talking about a handful of companies that sort of are beneficiaries of this or people are starting to work with, right? So obviously the big ones are Zoom and collaboration tools like monday.com and Asana and some of those guys. What we're starting to see is a next generation of software applications that are coming up for collaboration, both on a remote basis and a hybrid basis. We're starting to see a lot of really interesting generative AI tools that are coming up, uh, both from like the, the legacy companies like Microsoft and Adobe to some of the, the really interesting startups that are coming up as well that are sort of making employees a lot more productive than they've been. So that's like maybe a like broader silhouette of like areas that I'm personally excited about. Explain generative AI to our listeners in a way that my soon-to-be 100-year-old grandfather could understand. The best way to kind of think about generative AI is on a very basic level, a computer system that can answer your questions in the kind of language that you want to have that question answered rather than you going and searching for those answers. That's the textual context. And over time, what we are also seeing is it can perform actions as well, not just answer questions. 
that's a, a super high level of thinking about like how generative AI is sort of working. I almost heard you describe a life cycle that sounded like better questions, better answers, better context. Am I oversimplifying? Uh, no, no, that's a, a that's a really good explanation. And I think what sort of happened as we sort of moved to a hybrid world, a lot of these systems have been capturing a lot more data than they did before, right? So a lot of the models that these generative AI models use, and you can kind of break down generative AI in two components. One is the data set, and the other is the algorithms, right? The algorithm is only as, like is is important, but the data it is trained on is significantly more important. So as we've captured a lot more data, the value of these these chatbots or these applications become significantly more valuable. So yeah, so that's sort of been how I sort of think about how, like to kind of enhance uh, or expand on your explanation of generative AI. When we bring this into a practical context, what are some of the most interesting or compelling trends that employers and employees need to watch now as it relates to the future of work? As an example, like people are sort of starting to use generative AI tools like OpenAI, do everything from proofreading. So like you have, if you're a writer, you write a, a, some content and you put, put it into OpenAI and sort of spits out a proofread version of it. That's like a very basic sort of example of the way people are sort of using things. Uh, Adobe recently launched Firefly, where you can sort of like take a picture Say like you have like a wedding photograph where someone photobombed. Now you can replace that photobomber with a natural background. So those are things that are like for a photographer, that's like super. In the case of um, Microsoft, they had they when they acquired GitHub, GitHub launched this thing called Copilot, which is basically automated code generation. So you write like the kind of code you're looking for, and it like spits out some line of code that is vetted, you don't need QA, and it sort of just works. So there's like a couple of things that are sort of coming up that are really fascinating that allow people to interact with computers in their natural language and make people a lot more productive than they've probably ever been before. And I think it's going to be pervasive throughout the entire white collar work. And just to kind of give you some examples, right, from our portfolio, what we're seeing, one of the companies that we invested in is a company called BuildOps, which is basically a workflow tool for the construction industry. And they basically allow folks like electricians and plumbers to go out, out on site. They help them schedule their jobs, help them with invoicing their customers. And now what they're, they're working on is you take a picture of an HVAC machine as an example, it will pull up a record of everything that was ever done to the HVAC machine all the maintenance that needs to be scheduled, what are the parts that are needed to maintain that, and what is the cost to the end customer. And all of that is done in real time at the customer site where something like that could take weeks or months. So that's like an example of like generative AI in the context of like an everyday sort of like someone's job. Did you know that 68% of workers say a hybrid workplace is their preference? Make hybrid work for everyone with Robin. 
Robin is the industry-leading flexible workplace platform for connecting people with rooms, desks, and each other. We've helped companies like Peloton, Toyota, and Hulu build better workplace experiences. Plus, we integrate with the tools you already know and love. To learn more about how we make flexible work a reality, visit www.robinpowered.com. And who wants to pay for a repeat service call? I know I've been living in this just recently with my sprinkler system people. They came out, turn it on, do the maintenance, and I go to use it the first time and it tells me a wire is shorted out in some zone and now it won't work. And I thought to myself, you were just here. How did you not know this? Now I have to have you back. So if the company you're working with already could extend into other aspects of home maintenance, I think all listeners would be eternally definitely, grateful. Definitely, definitely. That's the, the the goal here. We were talking about the importance of money and part of your role is to manage a portfolio and decide where to place venture capital investments. Myth or misconception that venture capital is drying up? And just say more about the venture capital landscape in general. Over the last couple of years, the pace of investment increased by a pretty significant margin. And I think to be to be very open, I think we probably got ahead of ourselves in terms as an industry, in terms of investing in some really incredible companies, but companies that were probably at a valuation that was higher than that was warranted. We're seeing in the venture capital industry today is more of a measured approach. So we've seen, we're seeing a slowing of pace of investment. People are becoming a lot more cognizant of things like, hey, how much progress has this company actually made? We're not just investing in ideas, we're investing in businesses. And every time you invest, you raise a following round, there needs to be a, some progress made between the, the various levels of financing and stuff, right? So we're moving back to normalcy and sort of like thoughtfulness, which I think is very warranted. And so to your point, like has venture investing dried up? It's slower, but it's not in a bad way. It's, it's slower because it's, we're take, all of us are taking a lot more time making sure that we're investing in the best founders. These businesses are, are kind of building something that's iconic over time. We'd love to back like the, the next Salesforce and ServiceNow and uh, Cisco's of the world, right? So those things aren't exact, right? <laughs> and, and those companies aren't built overnight. So they require a lot of work and discipline. And we have everyone from entrepreneurs to enterprise employees who listen to the show. And whether or not a listener has to go pitch for venture capital, most people can relate to the experience of needing to build a business case to attract more budget or stay flat on your budget or try to navigate a potential budget cut. What makes for a compelling pitch? You listen to this all day long. What are some criteria or tips of things to think about that provide a compelling business case as it relates specifically to budget and getting the money or keeping the money you have. Yeah. So can, just to clarify, are you talking more from a startup perspective where founders are looking for capital? Or- I think in general, you, you, you've seen money from every perspective. M&A is a different money allocation activity. At the end of the day, most of us, even if it's you're a child asking your parent for money to go do something social with a friend, or you're an employee asking an employer or a prospective investor, or maybe you're in sales, 
most of the time we've all had an experience where we need to ask somebody for money and there are very few people who do it well. How would you coach us? Be our pitch coach about how to close the deal, get the money, build a compelling financial case. What are some common core principles, whether you're a teenager begging your parents for money to go hang out with your friends, you're a startup trying to get VC money, or you're inside of an enterprise and fending off the inevitable budget? Yeah, it's the, the, the one word I would describe how I think about this answer is ROI, right? A return on investment. So if you're asking for more marketing dollars, as an example, you need to deliver an ROI. You need to sort of say like, hey, I need this amount of money to generate this number of deals that will yield this amount of sales down the line. If you're a sales person or a sales executive, I need this amount of headcount. This is the, the number of reps I'm going to hire. And this is the revenue that we'll get. Or a product person, this is the these are the the outages we'll either not have, or these are the features we can build. We're going back to the really nitty-gritty of like prove to me that you deserve that the, that money, right? So and the ROI is if you kind of think about it from a customer's perspective too, right? They need to justify buying someone's products. So they, you need to be delivering an ROI to your customers. And I think that is becoming more important than ever before, because if you're not delivering ROI, like those are the products that are getting cut the fastest and those are the budgets that are getting cut the fastest. That's sort of like in, in the shortest way possible, the thing that I sort of think about the most. Measurements matter. It's one thing to build a great story. It's another thing to be able to tie it to actual metrics and measurements. Everyone wants to know that. And I would take what you're saying a step further and pose the sanity test to those ROI metrics as well. I mean, when you look at this, does this seem reasonable and real, right? I mean, can you really get to these outcomes? I'm sure you've done this. I have as well judging the student competition, the pitch contest, and you listen to some of the metrics and you ask yourself, you're a finance major. Does this seem true to you? I mean, there needs to be some kind of reasonably supported market logic behind what you're Definitely. saying. Definitely. And the best way to kind of do that is by historical success, right? So like you need to give me more budget dollars as an example, because I've done this, these things in the past. And if you give me more dollars, we can continue building on these, these successes. As long as that's sort of grounded in reality, rather than, hey, we're going to triple our, our revenue on like 10% more investment. Like, it's just like, can you show me how that happens is sort of really important. What is one piece of advice you would give to every entrepreneur or intrapreneur listening to the show right now? It is for new entrepreneurs. What we recommend is like, try to find a problem that they're passionate about and make sure that you're delivering value to the customers that you're passionate to help. The The best benefits I've ever gotten from in my career, best like experience I've had in my career is actually working with with great people. So try to build a team around you to solve these problems that you're proud of. And you can see yourself working with for the rest of your life. Because 
if you can solve an important problem, that is incredibly rewarding. But if you can build a, a tribe of people that are very passionate and driven as, as you are as an entrepreneur, like the benefits of those compound in a way that very few organizations, very few things in life can. Find a problem you are passionate to solve and invite others who are passionate about that problem to solve it with you. Well said. And this is a challenge, I think, all technology and all employers are trying to solve, which is replicating the experience of being around a water cooler, this social experience that we say we all miss about gathering. And that's why we have a segment on the show that is a virtual water cooler. And I'm going to ask you five questions and you just say the first thing that comes to mind. It's as if we bumped into each other in the break room and everyone else gets to listen in. Yep, are you ready? Perfect. And partially terrified? <laughs> I'm kidding. Definitely worried. I'm like, uh, let's see what I get asked. What time of day do you do your best creative work? 10.30. A.M. or P.M.? A.M. Speaking of time, if every day now had 25 hours rather than 24, what are you going to do with uh, your extra get hours? Get more sleep. Awesome. If you had to eat one meal every day for the rest of your life, what would that meal be? I, I would imagine it's probably something healthy like chicken and rice or chicken and broccoli because like if I can eat cake, and I would not be living a very long life in that case. Food as fuel. Yeah. Good guiding principle there. Now the zombie apocalypse mm -hmm. is coming. Who are the three people on your team? David Goggins, who is an author and a former uh, Navy SEAL who's just like mentally super tough. He ran something like 200 miles on a broken leg and placed second in, his, in, in like this ultra marathon. So he's just mentally, mentally really tough. I need like a good strategist. And I think President Obama would be a really good strategist in terms of like uh, being a leader and just thinking things through like a kick-ass Marine or something like a, like a Jocko Willink or someone like that, who's like, they can actually just like, like protect me. So like, I'll be like the worker bee, I guess. You'll take <laughs> exactly. orders. That's not, it's not a bad strategy given the people you chose. Yeah. How can listeners stay in touch with you and the work yeah, you're doing? So you can connect with me on LinkedIn or my email is sod at telstraventures.com. So if you're working on something interesting, send, send me a note. Awesome. Thanks to Saad Siddiqui, general partner at Telstra Ventures for joining us today on Success From Anywhere. Because success is not a destination, success is not a location. Success is available to anyone, anytime, anywhere. Thanks for listening.